Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Okay, so if you have consumed any episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast. I, I think we also have one on MedTech True Quality Stories. We did a webinar series with FDA back in 2018, and there's a couple other guides and content pieces on case for quality. Then uh, this episode might be interesting to you because there was a recent announcement from FDA that they're opening up uh, who can participate in the case for quality initiative. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Excited, as always, to talk to my good friend, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. You know, from time to time, we do a little bit of a role reversal, and I thought we might do this today. Uh, the topic that I'd like to dive into a little bit is this announcement that came out uh, recently about the FDA announcing that it was going to expand the case for quality initiative. And uh, I thought we could dive into that topic a little bit. So are you okay with, instead of me asking you questions, you might ask me a few questions today? Absolutely, John. I'm, I'm happy to have the honor to do that. So why don't we start out for the benefit of our audience that's not familiar with the case for quality. Uh, John, why don't you start out by explaining what exactly that Case for Quality initiative is. Yeah, sure. So 2019, we're, we're wrapping up the second year of a, a formal pilot of this Case for Quality initiative. And this is um, kind of a joint venture, so to speak, between FDA and an organization called MDIC, and another organization called the CMMI Institute. And uh, the, the whole premise around this Case for Quality initiative is to really evaluate the opportunity for companies to shift away from just being compliance-minded, compliance-oriented, and really focusing on, on the true quality of their products and processes. So that's the, the 30,000-foot view or super high level premise of the case for quality initiative. Okay, that's a great start. So let's now start uh, lowering the altitude a little bit. Why did FDA create this uh, this pilot program? Yeah, and and folks, there's a we'll provide some of the the backstory and some of the the context to this and actually I've had a chance to talk with a few folks who were kind of there in the beginning or or you know, sort of part of the origin of this case for quality initiative. But I believe that that um, the sort of the foundation for case for quality uh, was laid in like 2010, 2011, something along those uh, that period of time. So many, many years ago, actually. And the there was a kind of a case study or some research that was being done by the agency, as well as a, a few other folks who were involved with with the initial research. And what was discovered through that research and, and analysis of data is that um, you know the companies were very much focused on 
trying to play the compliance game, so to speak, you know, interpret FDA regulations and, and make sure they have the right checklists and forms and internal practices in place to demonstrate that compliance. And, and I think that was, has been reinforced time and time again through the nature of how an FDA inspection happens within an organization. It's an FDA inspection is very much focused on demonstrating compliance. And this research uncovered that that, that compliance-focused uh, approach, that some things that, uh, you know, quality uh, features or aspects of, of products um, might not have been getting the proper uh, attention within an organization because of the either real or perceived uh, compliance hurdles that were sort of in the way of doing so. So that was sort of the driving force behind that. And, and you know, it took a few years to unfold, but as the data was being analyzed and, and the assessment was being uh, reviewed, this case for quality initiative started to take shape. And, and again, I think the, uh, the movement a couple of years ago was to form a quasi-public-private partnership between the agency and a couple other uh, entities uh, to build the program and, and to leverage uh, a model that could be used to deploy as part of the Case for Quality Initiative. Is this a new program, John? How long has it been around? The, it's newer, uh, I, I guess, in, in uh, regulatory speak. I guess, yes, we could probably say it's new. However, the year one of the pilot uh, took place in 2018. We, we had that weird uh, period of time toward the, uh, I think it's toward the tail end of, of 2018 and the first couple of months of, of this year, 2019, where there was a government shutdown. So it was kind of limbo. But after the government uh, uh, came back on online, so to speak, the, the decision was to continue the pilot uh, for yet another year. So um, we're wrapping up the second year of this this pilot program. So it's newer. So for all of those in the audience who are trying to decide if this is applicable for them, how would you describe the current state of the program? And maybe you can give some examples of the types of companies that are involved. I know in year one, there were somewhere around uh, 30 to 40 uh, companies who were involved in, in the pilot program in 2018. Uh, I don't know the exact number of companies that participated uh, or in the pilot in 2019, but I know they, they were trying to, to easily double that participation. Um, so we're, we're talking, you know, probably order of magnitude, somewhere around 100 companies, give or take, uh, that are have been involved in the, the pilot program to date. And... My observation of, of the companies who have participated, and I don't have the, the uh, exact detailed list of every single company, but I, I know of a few companies, and it seems like the, the participants in this are skewed a little bit, and I think there's reasons for that, but it seems like it's a, uh, some larger companies uh, have historically been the participants and then I, the, the other thing I, I've observed is that a lot of the companies who are participating are very active with class three PMA type of products. And there's some reasons for that. A lot of the um, sort of uh, initial incentives, if you will, are, are um, um, the, the parts of the program that were beneficial for participants did or were intentionally favoring uh, those with PMA class three type of products. 
Um, so that's sort of the the background of the the types of companies. But um, but there are some some earlier stage companies, smaller companies that are involved as well. Shape and size is is not necessarily a determining factor. Um, it, it really has been about sort of the what's in it for me uh, for the companies that are involved. Okay, so now that we've covered some of the basics of the program, let's now start talking about what's in it for the company. So, for example, how does the Case for Quality program compare to FDA inspections? And my understanding, John, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that once a company is accepted into this program, then they can be removed from routine FDA inspections and have their performance somehow independently monitored, whatever that means. So is that correct? And what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a great point. And to date, um, that that's probably been one of the biggest, what's in it for me, advantages, if you will, to participate in the program is that when I enroll and when, when my company enrolls in the Case for Quality Initiative, then that means that during that period of time that I am not going to be subject to the routine FDA inspection activities. And part of the impetus for that, um, at least, you know, as we've known the pilot to date, is that one of the criteria to be even considered for the Case for Quality Initiative has been that the company has to have a demonstrated state of compliance with the agency. And the way that compliance is demonstrated is previous FDA inspections. So that was one of the sort of the rules or the, the entry criteria in order to even be considered for the pilot. So that's that's definitely a huge you know advantage. If you have a state of compliance, then you can qualify for this program. And while you're in this program, you're not going to be subject to additional FDA inspections through the process. Well, that certainly can be an advantage to companies, but uh, it does, as I'm sure you would appreciate, open up a potential Pandora's box. And, you know, is that something that we really want to do? But I asked you the question earlier, John, if this was a, a, a new program, and you said, you know, sort of it's, it was new, but, you know, I I find very little truly new in the regulatory world. And when I first uh, read that, uh, companies can be excused from routine inspections because they get accepted in the program. One of the things that came to my mind, John, um, and you tell me what you think of this comparison, is the software pre-certification program that you and I talked about in a podcast uh, a few months ago, where instead of FDA evaluating the device, in this particular case, the software, they sort of certify the team. And once the team is certified, then you don't have to go through the FDA for a for a clearance, you know, on on the particular product. Do you think there's a sort of a similarity here where we're certifying their team in a sense to make sure that they know what they're doing? And once we do that, we kind of don't micromanage them. We let them, you know, not uh, be subject to routine inspections. Sort of. I think there there are certainly some parallels to the digital health pre-cert program. And I think that's magnified a bit because the the pre-cert and the case for quality initiatives have kind of been running side by side in a similar time frame. And the folks who are managing each of those initiatives within the agency, they're very collaborative and they they work very closely with one another. I mean, the, the program manager for Case for Quality initiative is a gentleman by the name of uh, Francisco Vicente, 
And then the uh, gentleman who is head of the digital health pre-cert program is a, a guy by the name of Bakul Patel. I know those two guys, they often are at the same event speaking, you know, about both of these initiatives. So I think there are some similarities. Now, I think that the case for quality is is a little bit different in that it doesn't necessarily imply that you're going to be outside the scope of an FDA inspection forever. I think really the, the idea behind, this is my interpretation, the case for quality pilot program and sort of waiving the uh, inspections while a company is involved in that is really about uh, data gathering and trying to establish intel and information about, you know, what types of, of more progressive programs that uh, FDA could embrace uh, that that kind of puts the focus back on quality. I mean, I've even heard there's a, uh, did you know, Mike, Dr. Uh, Sharon ha- has a YouTube video where he talks about case for quality. And one of the, the things that stuck out um, to me during that few minute YouTube video is, is the statement that he made about uh, a future state might be uh, or a, a wish list item might be to strike the word compliance from the lexicon. Now, that seems a little bold, but but I get the gist, you know, and it's, and, you know, if programs and initiatives up until this point have um, have been so compliance oriented where companies are, are putting things on the back burner from a quality perspective because of the regulatory obstacles and hurdles, then, then I get the gist behind uh, the statement. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Jeff Sharon's comment because maybe after all this time, he is listening a little bit to me because you and I have talked many, many times about how compliance just means that you're passing. doesn't mean that you're doing a good job, but we'll leave that as a topic of a different discussion. And only because you mentioned him by name, I just wanted to give a, a shout out to my friend Bakul Patel uh, at FDA. He, he and I coincidentally did back-to-back presentations at a conference just earlier this week. So uh, hello to, to him. All right, so back to the to the subject matter. Why would a company have interest in looking into the case for quality program? Yeah. In other words, what's in it for them? Yeah, sure. And, and I mentioned the a lot of the companies who are involved have class three PMA devices, and there are some additional incentives, if you will, for a company that's in that has those types of products. And it's largely around the changes that one might make to a, a PMA product or a manufacturing process. Uh, you know, if you were a traditional medical device company with a PMA product that's not in the case for quality initiative, and you make a change to your PMA product, there's PMA supplements, and you know, you, you probably deal with this. Well, I know you deal with this a lot more than I do, but but if I, if somebody wants to make a change to a PMA product i mean it's it's a bit of a an arduous process to to get that preparation that submission to the FDA and the permission to do so so i want to answer the question but maybe you can remind folks if i am making a change to a to a PMA device and i have to submit a supplement what does that process look like well, it can be a, a very arduous process, John. And coincidentally, I was having a conversation with one of my customers just yesterday about exactly this in the context that we were describing it is this whole business around the ethylene oxide, the ETO sterilization problems that as an industry we're facing. And suffice it to say, if you make almost any change to a PMA, then that's going to require 
notification to the FDA. And my question is, although that's what the regulation says, why? So for example, using the ETO as a very short case study, in my original PMA, if I can show as part of the submission that ETO, ethylene oxide, is the appropriate sterilization method for my particular device. In other words, the ETO does not affect the materials, the mechanical properties, the biocompatibility, and so on. And if I define my parameters so that it's such that as long as I expose my device to a certain concentration of ETO for a certain period of time, and so on and so on, then what difference does it make who the heck does the ETO sterilization? In other words, why, if I'm dealing with one ETO service provider, and for whatever reason, they're not able to do it anymore, perhaps because the EPA comes in and says, sorry, you can't do business in our state anymore, and I want to shift to another ETO provider. Why the heck do I need to notify FDA of that as long as I can validate that the second ETO provider is meeting the same performance parameters as the first? So you're exactly right, John, that the PMA requirements, especially under change management, are much more rigorous than they are for 510K and de novo devices. But the problem is, is it really justified? In some yeah. cases, yes, but in other cases, no. And just one last thing I'll add, John, this is really creating disincentives for companies to make changes or improvements in their products if they have to jump through all of these mm, FDA hoops again, uh, when quite frankly, sometimes it's really not necessary. Your thoughts on that, John, and especially how it relates to this case for quality program. You took the words out of my mouth, and I'll, I'll build upon that, but but your example is is one of the exact types of scenarios that was identified why this case for quality type of initiative uh, it has uh, value, and there shouldn't be disincentives for, for companies to make changes. It shouldn't be... Um, terribly complicated or a challenge. And one of the other upsides to the case for quality participants is they get expedited review on any sort of PMA supplements or or changes. I I don't remember, don't quote me exactly on this timeline, but I I think it was something like they they commit to having a response to the companies. I think it's within a week. And, And I know that there was one example where they were able to give the company a response within like a 24-hour period. So it's, it's trying to expedite that process because what, they've, what FDA found is exactly the point that you described is a lot of companies were sitting on changes, not making changes that would positively impact the quality of the product or the processes to produce the device because of the hurdles and the obstacles and the challenges involved with the PMA supplement process. So changes that would actually benefit the product, which in turn would actually make it a safer, more effective uh, device uh, for the patient weren't being implemented into uh, the company's processes because of these hurdles. I agree, John, and I would just like to add one more point before we continue on, and I want to be absolutely crystal clear about this, not advocating taking shortcuts. When I say that in some cases it's not necessary to notify the FDA of a change, like, for example, the ETO example that I just shared a moment ago, I'm, I'm speaking specifically about the paperwork that has to go to the FDA and be evaluated and so on, which in many situations is, in my opinion, a complete and utter waste of time. What I'm not talking about 
is the actual engineering validation that the company has. They have an obligation, whether you want to call it ethical or otherwise, especially in the class 3 PMA world, to make sure that whatever change they're making, like I said, if you're shifting from one ETO vendor to another, that that second one is doing is is accomplishing exactly the same thing. You know, they might be using a different chamber geometry. They might be using a a different concentration of ETO or something like that. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to repeat all of the the engineering validation. And in my opinion, John, companies that don't know that and people that don't know that in these companies, they shouldn't be in this business. Is yeah. that being overly harsh? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think you're spot on. Uh, I think sometimes, unfortunately, the our industry looks at regulatory, uh, what I need to do from a regulatory perspective, uh, you know, if, if I can do a quote letter to file, that that means that I don't need to do as much work on my end, that that's just a, a quick and dirty draft a memo, good to go. Um, I think, you know, I hope folks listening to this episode are, are heeding Mike's words and understanding the intent here. This is not, regulatory is not a, an excuse uh, or an impediment for doing the right thing and making sure that we're, we're doing the proper testing and due diligence on our end. Because again, remember, we are making medical devices that are going to be used to help cure, solve, or I guess cure might not be the right word here, but uh, impact the quality of life of the patients who are going to receive our products. That's exactly right. And the very last thing I'll, I'll add on this point, and then we can move on. In the context of this conversation with my customer just yesterday, they asked me, well, gee, Mike, then why is it that FDA has this regulation, especially in the PMA world, that essentially requires them to be notified? I mean, in my opinion, John, when a company shifts from one vendor, you know, whether it's ETO or something else to another, that has nothing to do with FDA, as long as, you know, the um, the company has, as I said, validate that. But they asked me, why do we have this regulation? And I said, you know what, the, 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 the real reason, the root cause of this kind of regulation is because either we have companies that want to take shortcuts or we have people in companies that don't know what the heck they're doing. And as a result, we need to micromanage them. We need to have FDA oversee to make sure that they're doing the things that that we as professional engineers and, and medical device developers should know to do anyway, but maybe not everybody does. All right. The, the, the last thing that I thought that we could talk about today under this topic of uh, the case for quality is uh, the expansion of the program of this pilot uh, program. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about what's being apparently added into this program, John, and maybe you can add it onto this, is the inclusion of non-compliant companies into this program to help them uh, return to compliance. And so maybe you can explain to our audience exactly what that means. And uh, to be a bit provocative here, why the heck are these companies non-compliant to begin with? <laughs> okay, sure. Um, let me go into the weeds just a little bit on the methodology. So the Case for Quality Initiative, one of the, the methodologies that they're using is a what's called an appraisal model. And there are quite a few different, if, if, you, if you do an internet search for quality appraisal models, there are quite a few different uh, methodologies that are out there. The one that was chosen for the Case for Quality Initiative is from the CMMI Institute. Interestingly, at least for me, when I was doing the research on this a while back, the appraisal model uh, from CMMI 
uh, actually has been around since like, I think the mid to late seventies, something like that. So a long time. And it was originally devised as a methodology for, for like software development and, and hardware development. Uh, so really interesting, but it, it looks at the a company's business from a different lens, so to speak. So like a classic FDA inspection is going to be, you know, like I said earlier, very compliance oriented. Here's your procedure. Uh, does this procedure meet this clause of, of the CFR, this clause, this clause, and this clause? Great. Where's your evidence that you followed your procedure and so on and so forth. Whereas the, the, um, the appraisal model is more about assessing, kind of establishing a baseline, so to speak, within the company. So there's uh, s- several different practice areas uh, that they evaluate and they are doing it more interview style with the people who are doing the work. So it's not really, I mean, it might feel a, a little bit like an audit, but the, the intent behind it is different. It's really to try to understand how the, the people who are doing the, the jobs to be done within an organization, how they're doing it. They understand the intent and, and so on and so forth. So then sort of the first activity of going through this is to establish that baseline and then, you know, use a, a dashboard or certain KPIs or metrics to monitor, you know, opportunities for improvement within an organization and then, you know, put different initiatives in place to kind of get that dashboard with as many green lights, so to speak, uh, no pun intended, or at least uh, plans and initiatives in place to move in the right direction. Now. To me, this this announcement is exciting because you know if the if the intent behind the case for quality initiative is to shift a focus from compliance to to focusing on true quality, then I think companies who are in a non-compliant state this might be just the kind of program that that would get their focus in the right direction. And I have this belief; it's a theory, I suppose, but. But if I'm focusing on true quality, if I'm focusing on what's best for a patient, then the compliance piece should in and of itself, in, in my strong opinion, take care of itself. So, you know, if, if the up until now, the companies who are involved in this program are allowed to participate in this program, it had to demonstrate a compliance. Compliance doesn't necessarily ensure quality. I get that. But um, but if I'm a non-compliant company and, and maybe I need a little bit of help or guidance or you know, maybe I have sort of the wrong approach to managing my business. I, I think this case for quality initiative can give me a framework to focus on the, the practice areas where my, in my business that, that allow me to, to better manage and mitigate issues and areas for concern and put me on the right path to, to focusing on quality. Well, John, just before we wrap this up, just to poke the bear a little bit further, let me ask a, a more provocative question. So for of these non-compliant companies, is it really FDA's job to help them become compliant? In other words, just yesterday, I did a pre-sub at FDA, and one of the people, reviewers, actually the, the ranking person from FDA in the room, uh, the person was, was very nice and very cordial and, and, and said, you know, uh, we want to, to help you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I basically said, you know, thank you very much for your offer. It's very kind of you, but that's not your job. I said, uh, you know, it's our job to develop our medical device and show you how it meets our label claims and it meets the regulatory requirements and so on. It's not your job to kind of help me. And I don't mean, I don't say that to be unkind. It's just that it puts me in a subservient position. It's, it's, it's the underlying assumption is that somehow FDA knows more 
whether we're talking about the development of a device or a manufacturing process or quality than, than, than we do. And I don't want to be in that position. So what do you think, John? Is it FDA's job to help non-compliant companies become compliant again? It's a good question. And, and it's thought provoking for me. I think that FDA has, I'll say, they have a vantage point and a role. And, and obviously, you know, the, the big job or big responsibility that the FDA uh, plays is to protect and promote the health of U.S. citizens. So I, I think they have some uh, at least perceived responsibility to to the American public. But at the end of the day, bottom line is no, it's not the FDA's job to to implement or to ensure that companies are focusing on compliance and focusing on quality. At the end of the day, it's up to the company. And it is a it is a slippery slope, quite frankly, because if me as a company have quality issues or compliance issues and I'm looking at this case for quality initiative as a bailout, then, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's dangerous in, in my opinion, because, you know, it should a regulatory agency be, be so in my business that they're dictating and mandating all the things that I should and should not do. I think the, the for me, the clear answer to that is no, as a medical device company, this is a one thousand percent my responsibility. So that's that's my uh, my answer to your provocative question. <laughs> and I'll give you. Uh, I, I agree. It's a it's a thousand percent the company's responsibility. And if for whatever reasons the company does not have the in house expertise, then you know they should quite frankly, look for somebody like you or me or somebody that does know what the heck they're doing to help them. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'll give you a very quick example from my world, and then we can wrap this up. One of the companies that I'm working with right now, they hired a company, I won't say which one, to essentially put together their entire quality management system for them. That QMS system did tick off, did meet all of the regulatory check marks. But it became very obvious to me very quickly when I started working with this company that they didn't know, they didn't understand what was in their own quality system. They did not put it together. A lot of it was literally copy and pasted. As a matter of fact, some of the the, the um, processes and procedures in their QMS were actually um, um, for devices that that particular company did not even make. So to me, that was a classic example of just the, the template approach, oh, no. uh, the, yeah. the, the cookie cutter approach. Yeah. And so, you know, so, so unfortunately, these are the, the, the realities of the real world. Uh, with, with the case for quality, quality program, have any impact on the scenario that I just described with you? Um, uh, frankly, I don't know. Um, and... And sadly, the the story that you share is is way too common than it should. And and you know, I, I guess I can speculate there that maybe companies like that are in situations like that they're they're so uh, compelled to demonstrate compliance that uh, you because you, I'm sure that those procedures that they they purchased uh, and that were dropped in cookie cutter style. Uh, on the surface are probably compliant to the regulations, but there's obviously a a big aha and and something that was grossly missed by, by that, that example that you mentioned, they didn't apply it 
and I, I think that's the aha that that companies need to to realize is it's not just about the procedure. I mean, frankly, the procedure is is the trivial part. It's it's really about the practices and 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 the intent and that you uh, implement on your daily uh, business and, and the day to day practices and and all the different uh, parts of your business is. Did you meet the intent? And, and you and I have talked about that before. I can have all the, the, the best, most robust forms and templates in the world. And, you know, if I, if I do that and I fill them out, great. But if I miss the intent behind it, then am I really doing anybody justice by just filling out forms? I would say the answer to that is no. And, and folks, listen, I... I'm excited about this case for quality initiative. I'm excited about the the pre-cert program because this is a these are signs to me that that the agency is is paying attention and I think they realize that there's opportunity for improvement in the regulatory framework in which we operate. But this isn't this isn't by any stretch of the imagination a silver bullet. Um, at the end of the day, I. I can embrace this methodology of true quality. I can embrace uh, a quality appraisal model and never be a participant in, in the case for quality pilot program. I, can, I don't have to participate in this to embrace the methodology and to do what's right uh, for my business, to do what's right for my products, do what's right for uh, the patients who are going to receive those products. So I, I think this is just a sign that, that the, the agency is, is moving in a direction, a positive direction, in my opinion. Well, I agree, John, and I'll make my last comment, and then I'll let you wrap this up by just sort of recapping what you think is the most important takeaways for our audience from this conversation today. But look, let's apply a little common sense here. So admittedly, I do not spend uh, 100% of my time working as an FDA auditor. That's not my that's not my role, although I, I do some of that work. But if I walked into a company and I saw as part of going through their QMS, procedures relating to a medical device that they don't even make. Obviously, that's not going to instill a high degree of confidence, you know, in, in that these folks know what the heck they're doing and that obviously I'm going to dig much deeper. So um, again, let's let's not over overlook the obvious. All right. So why don't you kind of tie things up, John, with any most important thoughts, uh, takeaways, lessons to be learned, and then we can close out our discussion for today. Sure, absolutely. And, and Mike, thanks for the role reversal today. I, I had a good time on this. But my, um, I guess my closing thought on this is as much as the thought of uh, striking the term compliance and the practices around compliance from the lexicon or, or the approach uh, from a regulatory perspective might sound appealing, let's, let's be frank, it's not going away anytime soon. And it's, it's, it should not be an impediment for us to focus on true quality. So, you know, my advice to you is, you know, if you want to participate in this program, terrific. I don't get any kickbacks or, or extra special privileges, whether you do or you do not. However, I do, I implore you to think about quality of your products and processes because there's something that you're designing and, and developing and manufacturing and selling into the marketplace that, you know, one day it might be used on myself. It might be used on somebody that I love and care about. And, and I hope that 
that you focused on quality of your products uh, and that you focus on what is best for your patient. Uh, regardless of what perceived obstacles or challenges are in front of you, I want to make sure that that product that that could be used on somebody that I love is as safe and effective and in the highest quality as possible. That's why I do this. That's why I know you know Mike is involved in in this industry as well. Is is to really try to have a positive impact on improving the quality of life. So, folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, I just want to remind you, Greenlight Guru, we're, we are here to help. Uh, we have an EQMS software platform. Yes, true quality means a great deal to us. The mission of Greenlight Guru is to improve the quality of life. We're very focused on doing what's best for, for your patients and for your business. So if you need a little bit of help with an EQMS software platform that's designed specifically for the medical device industry, designed by actual medical device professionals, then please go over to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about how we might be able to help. And as always, thank you for being a listener of the Global Medical Device Podcast. As always, this is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear.